1: Hi, reader. I'm Cindy Burnett. Welcome to my award winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. On the show, I chat with authors whose books I have enjoyed about their new releases, and I give you a peek behind the curtain of the publishing industry with my behind the scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. If you're looking for a community of readers, bonus content, and a chance to read books before they hit the shelves, I hope you'll consider joining my Patreon group, which is filled with a wonderful bunch of book lovers. The link to join is in the show notes. Do you love to be in the know about upcoming books? Kelly Hooker of at Kelly Hook Reads Books and I do too. We couldn't find a comprehensive list of titles all in one place, so we made one ourselves and now we're sharing it with you. Our literary lookbook is a list of 182 books releasing from January to May, 2024, curated for our communities. The link to buy it is in my show notes. Today I'm chatting with Benjamin Stevenson about Everyone on This Train is a Suspect. I adored this book from page one. It is so funny. It's a very clever mystery. There is just so much to love about it. It will definitely be one of my top reads of the first quarter of 2024. Benjamin is an award-winning stand-up comedian and author. He has worked for publishing houses and literary agencies in Australia and the U.S. He is the author of three novels, including Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone.
0: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
1: Welcome, Benjamin. How are you today? Very well, thank you. I'm so glad you're here because I absolutely loved everyone on this train as a suspect, and I can't wait to chat about it.
0: Thank you. That's so nice. Yeah, I'm excited to chat.
1: Such a fun read and just so hilarious, and so I have a ton of questions. But before we do that, will you give me a quick synopsis of the
0: book? Yeah, so basically everyone on this train is a suspect, sees uh, an author, uh, Ernest Cunningham, who has previously written a sort of real-life murder mystery of a bunch of murders that happened to him, and he's invited to a murder mystery writers' festival on the Ghan, which is a famous train that goes from the top to the bottom of Australia, from Darwin to Adelaide. And on this train, there are six authors, including him, and they're going to give talks about murder mysteries and, and how they write their books. But on the first night, one of them is murdered. And so the remaining five writers decide to put their heads together because they think that if they've all spent a lifetime writing murder mysteries, then they should be pretty clued in and able to solve one. So there's five detectives all kind of racing to solve the murder of this prominent author first. But the problem is that if all of them know how to plot out a murder, they certainly know how to commit one. So it's, it's a question of how do you find a killer when everyone on this train knows how to get away with it? exactly.
1: And how did you come up with the idea for this one, setting it on a train and the follow-up to your previous novel?
0: Well, yeah, there's a few things that came into play sort of deciding how to do a follow-up, and one was sort of the natural progression of the first book, uh, everyone in my family has killed someone is is sort of the main character's memoir of these murders that happened to him. So when I was looking at a follow-up, I'm like, well, what's the natural kind of progression? I mean, the first book is posed as his memoir, so in this world, I need to sort of convincingly betray that he's released the book. So then I thought, well, maybe he's an author on a book tour. And then the real thing that unlocked it was I thought, well, maybe crime writers are the perfect serial killers. You know, my search history is just, it's filled with stuff that is just so bizarre or unique or interesting. You know, in the first novel, I had a serial killer that murdered people using an ancient Persian torture technique. So I've got all those kind of Google searches, which should I ever go to court um, for something suspicious is not going to hold up particularly well for me. So I just, I was thinking about that and I was thinking, okay, well, maybe authors are the perfect killers. And so then I thought, well, what if I got six of them in the room and what if I had them with all of a different kind of specialty because every author on the train has a different type of book, you know, from airport thrillers to psychological thrillers to ones that do more forensics? And what if each of those skills were sort of able to power Ranger together into one, basically, Sherlock Holmes? So, that kind of fascinated me for the people and the plotting. And then the train, you know, my books are affectionate homages to the golden age of mystery fiction from the 1930s. And so, it was irresistible to sort of homage Murder on the Orange Express and with an Australian spin. And, you know, it's completely different, new plot, completely new book. But I thought, you know, The Train is a classic for a reason. And maybe I could use this location in a unique and inventive way. And so, I put six authors on it. I put it in the middle of the Australian desert, which um, for anyone who hasn't been, it's vast and red and hot. And it's just an amazing setting for a novel. And once I had all those elements together, I sort of knew I had it.
1: And you mentioned your search history. And at the end of this one, You mentioned that you traveled on the GAN and that they were so great about all of your questions and didn't send somebody to arrest you, even though you were asking all sorts of questions about murder and how things would play out.
0: Yeah. So I've actually been on the GAN twice in 12 months, which is a bit bizarre because it's most, you know, it's sort of a once in a lifetime thing. And the first time I went on it, it was for research and I, I didn't tell anybody I was a writer. And I was really fascinated was I was writing a locked room mystery and one of the problems that I found was that all of the locks in our section of the GAN, the locks are on the inside of the doors, so you can't lock the door once you leave it. And I don't really know why that is. Maybe it's a safety thing. I don't know. Maybe it's a train thing. But that's quite important to a murder mystery writer, writing a locked room mystery, that you have some locked doors that you can hide bodies behind. But nobody can lock a door unless they're inside the room, uh, which I found quite interesting. So I was going around asking the staff what all the locks where all the locks on the doors were, you know, which locks have doors on them. And I was quite obsessed with the meat freezer and one of the staff told me that there was a lock on the meat freezer in the kitchen and I said, oh, well, you know, could you could you put a body in there? Um, <laughs> and then I remembered to sort of tell them that I was researching a novel, but they were so enthusiastic and so helpful. And then I sent the, the company that runs the GAN, Journey Beyond, a copy of the final novel and just to really kind of, I don't really know, I didn't really feel obligated to them in any way, but I just wanted them to like it really. And then they wrote back and said, Oh, we love it. Would would you like to come on the train again and do some talks about the book? And so we did that. I just got back kind of two or three weeks ago from doing that. And it was so bizarre because here I am doing a talk on the GAN about an author who gets invited to do a talk on the GAN that gets murdered. It was very inception level stuff.
1: Definitely very meta. And you're making sure when you're in your room you're locking your door.
0: Yeah, absolutely, from the inside. Although that's quite tantalizing <laughs> yes. to a mystery writer as well. You know, how did he lock it? Absolutely. And I pronounced it the Ghan. I'm sorry, it's the
1: Ghan. I wasn't sure how to pronounce it, so I will correct myself going forward. I
0: go up and down, and everyone in Australia pronounces it the Ghan, but um, it's technically a shortened version of the Afghan Express was the original name, so Ghan is, is how you're supposed to do it. But I will slip up during this interview, I guarantee you. Well, that makes me feel better.
1: So, I love that Ernest talks to the reader, as well as regularly recapping the status of the investigation and what the reader must be thinking. That is so much fun and very clever. How did you decide to handle it that way?
0: Yeah, so Ernest's role as a narrator in the book sort of solves two things that I wanted to do. One is that I wanted to subvert the more common trope of the unreliable narrator that's became really common in psychological suspense through the sort of mid-2000s and 10s. All fantastic novels, and I've really enjoyed many of them, but I was just getting a little bit tired of knowing that the narrator was lying to you. So, when I sort of looked to sort of go back and try and do a modern take on a golden age mystery, which is also known as a play fair mystery, I thought, well, that's one of the keys, isn't it? That the detective has to play fair with the reader and the unreliable narrator trope of him sort of uh, revealing things that he knew that you don't isn't going to fly in a fair play mystery. So, I decided to make him the most reliable narrator that you've ever seen. So, he's not just reliable, he's incessantly honest and he will go out of his way to sort of spoil things in the novel, which I thought was really fun. So, that's one reason. And the other reason is that I, I I like to think that my books can be read two ways. So, if you're just there for the roller coaster and you want everything to sort of happen and have fun with it and go along for the ride of the plot, and then at the end, the detective will stand up and solve it all for you, I've absolutely written that book and, and you'll have a great time. But if you're the type that wants to get out a pencil and a piece of paper and try and work out the anagrams and the puzzles and and the ciphers and the codes, and who was where, when, and all of the clues, then I've also tried to write a book like that. And the thing that Ernest's honest narration and his first-person narration does is if the book is a puzzle for the reader to solve, Ernest is the person who provides the rules of the puzzle. So every murder mystery book starts as sort of an empty Sudoku box, really, and Ernest's job is to give you enough numbers that you can solve the rest yourself. Now, he'll solve it for you, but that's his role is to give you kind of the rules. So, he sort of says things directly to the reader like, you might want to pay attention to this, you might want to look over here. Obviously, this character is important, think about this. But also, it, it gets even more direct than that. In, in this book, there's an anagram and he sort of spells it out. And right before he solves the murder, he says, just give me one more shot to solve the anagram because if you want to try and solve it, then I want you to. And I think that 5 to 10% of readers should solve a good mystery book. I think that if 5 to 10% of people can't figure it out, then you haven't given them enough clues to play fair, to use that phrase again. But also, I think, you know, I'm being very direct because I'm very proud of the puzzles that I've put in the book. And I think that I can still trick you, even while telling you, that they're right in front of your face. So it's it's a little bit of a game. It's a little bit of a magic trick. And it's, it's for people who want to solve the book as they're reading it, as well as people who just want to have Ernest entertain them.
1: Well, and it does make a very entertaining read. And I loved that he said, okay, I'm going to tell you how many times the character that did it is going to be mentioned. And then he periodically updates how many times everybody's been mentioned. There's just a lot of clever kind of wink-wink things that just cracked me up, but also
0: really pulled me into the story. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's it's a line between being clever and smug, which I'm always careful to sort of ride. And on the naming thing, that, that was really fun. So, as you say, Ernest says, I'm going to use the killer's name 106 times in this book from here. And then he proceeds to count how many times he's using everyone's name sort of periodically. And then right before he reveals the solution to the mystery, five characters on his list are on the exact same number of mentions, which was held to edit. But super fun. And <laughs> and I think, you know, and also, you know, there's it's it's a it's a murder mystery novel. Not everyone's who they say they are. You gotta add, you gotta subtract, you gotta think about it that way. So I had a really kind of analytical fun playing with that kind of count, but it was very difficult to edit. I bet so.
1: And there's so much humor. I know you are a comedian, so it's probably very easy for you to weave the humor in, but that is one thing that I just love. I think it's so entertaining and so engaging when you can laugh as well
0: as trying to puzzle things out. Thank you. Yeah, it's 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 not as easy as it seems. This is my fourth book and the second that uses a sort of lighthearted tone to it. And my first two novels, which weren't variously published in the US in different ways, but um, they were very serious kind of noir crime novels because I was so obsessed with being taken seriously as a writer. I look back on that and think I was a little bit, you know, a little bit foolish because I was I was concerned that I wouldn't be taken seriously if I used my sort of comedic skills. But then what I realized when I sat down to write the first book in this series, everyone in my family has killed someone, was that I was leaving half of my skill set at the door and I was doing myself a disservice by not doing what I was good at. So I wanted to inject that. And the key thing for me is always that it's a murder mystery novel with some sort of humour to it. It's not a comedy. So, I've always tried to make sort of the plot watertight and the plot is never humorous. Um, And the things that are funny are the characters' perspectives or the way they react to things that come across as maybe clever or funny. But the plot itself is, is sort of a watertight classic murder mystery. So, You know, my personal rule was no one shall die by slipping on a banana peel. And I thought if I hold to that, then I can do um, a murder mystery with humor in it. But in terms of ease, I mean, comedy and crime writing have a lot of uh, similarities. They're all about pace and they're all about economy and they're all about tension and when to break the tension. Now, your goals are very different, but basically the rule of comedy is you put tension in the room, you break it when you want to laugh, and you need to use the right economy, the exact economy, really, only the words you need to get to the punchline the best way that you can get to it. So, it it takes a real kind of knack to sort of paring it down to write good comedy. And crime fiction as well, you know, it's all about pace and tension, knowing sort of how the reader is feeling on each page, making sure it's not labored and and making sure that it's kind of tight and tense. And so, I think it gives me that. But it's It's way slower to write. So every time I write a passage in the book that's sort of lightly funny, it's taken me a whole day to write 50 words because you really want that snap. You really want that uniqueness where I can write sort of a whole page describing a crime scene in in a day, but um, I could only write 50 words of something really, really snappy that, that hopefully the reader laughs at.
1: Okay, that's super interesting. I'm not sure I would have realized that just because knowing your background, I would have thought those parts might be easier, but it makes perfect sense the way you're describing it. And to back up a little bit, I completely agree. Like what I like so much about your book was how fabulous the mystery was. It was super clever, very well done. And then the humor is layered on top of that. So absolutely, it it is definitely a mystery with some humor versus a comedic story with a little mystery thrown
0: in. Yeah, and I will say on that, on which is harder, sort of the comedy or the crime. The comedy is definitely more comfortable, but I find it harder to get right. I mean, jokes are hard. Jokes And writing a book, you know, you have to read your own book about 15 times before it goes to publication. Nothing deflates a joke like hearing it twice. Try hearing it 15 times when you're the one that wrote it, you know. So it's more about that rather than that I find it one or the other more difficult. It's just the refinement on the, on the comedy is, takes a lot of effort that I enjoy. Right. No, that makes sense. A little trickier.
1: Well, I always think that's a difficult thing about writing a mystery is what you just described because you spoke a little bit about it earlier too, but you want to lead the reader down the path and you don't want the reader from page five being like, well, I certainly know who did it. And then that is who did it because that's not a fun read. But on the flip side, you don't want the reader having no clue who it is, getting to the end and being like, I've never even heard of this person and suddenly they're the murderer. So it's a fine line between having enough detail and not having too much detail. And when you have to reread your own book over and over again, those things I think would be particularly difficult. Like where am I in the leading the reader down the path kind of thing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there is that what you're really looking for and this is what I mean when I say, you know, 5 to 10% of people should solve good mysteries. They should sort of have enough in front of them to get there. And what you're looking for as an author is the moment when the book kind of turns on a dime and everything reveals itself, that one clue that knocks over the rest of the dominoes. The key is that that moment has to be an ah moment, not a gotcha moment. So, It's got to be an unraveling and an unveiling that is satisfying. And it's got to be satisfying even if the reader already knows who the killer is. So they have to go, oh, that's clever. And I see how they did that. Oh, I I got this bit, but I didn't get this bit. Or if they have no idea who the killer is, it's got to be satisfying as well. Oh, I was wrong because you tricked me up here. But it can't be oh, I did not know that piece of information, and now I'm a little bit annoyed because I thought it was this person, and I actually still think it should be this person. I feel a bit hoodwinked by the book. So, it's kind of a delicate act. And it's it's also because, like, perfectly honestly, I am trying to hoodwink you, but I don't want you to feel like you've been hoodwinked. And I think that's kind of the real key. But you're right, when you're rereading it, you know, it's it's about, it reveals itself to you, the author, you know far too obviously far too often and you just kind of keep thinking oh god they're going to figure it out they're going to figure it out and there's a moment when the first person in your team that hasn't read the synopsis because the other problem it's not a problem but everyone in the publishing team knows the ending before you start writing the book or certainly in this book because I'd I'd had a synopsis that we sort of worked on before I started writing it so everyone knows the ending so people are sort of you know, we're tossing back and forth, edit notes about which bits are too obvious. And I'm like, yeah, but we all know where it's going because I told you. So, um, that can be quite challenging <laughs> as well. But I think that one of the things that gets it done for me that makes it better, which may sound, uh, it's a little sidetracked, but I think it's really important to kind of murder mystery writing is that the red herrings in a good book that has an aha moment and not a gotcha moment. The red herrings have to be sort of really plausible, which sounds simple, but when you've got sort of six to 10 suspects, one of them's the murderer and then the rest of them are the red herrings, it's not enough to just sort of have someone be standing up the back in the shadow. Well, that guy's creepy because he wears a trench coat, so we suspect him. Those kind of things. They just don't fly for me in novels. So, understanding what every character wants and what's in their way. And making it something that they might kill over. Not every red herring has to be evil, but to be convinced that what they want is worth what has happened is the real key. So that's what I'm really I really drill down on in my edits. And that helps me feel compelled as I'm writing that the the killer is sufficiently hidden amongst a raft of convincing suspects because they've all got defined wants that drive their own plotline I mean really you should be able to you shouldn't be able to swap the murderer to any one of them but you should be able to write the novel from any one of their perspectives and it be just as gripping because what they want is enough at stake so um, that to me is better than this person wasn't necessarily in the room and therefore they're a suspect by circumstance
1: well in the way I look at the reveal often, is that suddenly everything will slot into place for me. It's almost like it goes boom, 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 boom. And my mind kind of rewinds to different points of the book and being like, oh, that's why this was done that way or that's why she was there or that's why this happened. And I just feel like it almost just kind of goes boom, 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 boom and it all lines up. And then I love thinking back on it for like the next day or two. Okay, that was so clever the way this was done or this was handled.
0: Yeah, which I really love too. And that's something I wanted to do. Well, in both of these books, you know, the scene – At the end, where the detective stands up in the metaphorical library or literal library in the first book and solves it and explains it to all of the characters one by one and reveals all of their secrets and eliminates the suspect until they get the final one. Like I said before, it's the knocking over of the dominoes. It's knocking that one over and having them all go. (laughs) But another thing that sort of helps that, and that's like my favourite scene in all of these novels and and my favourite scene to write, but the thing that helps that is having a lot of clues so you can't sort of do that everything locks into place if it's just sort of one thing that sort of eventually catches the killer out like I don't know a, a fingerprint or or uh, or you know the killer themselves revealing themselves by pulling a gun and saying ah oh, you were so close and now I've got you you know which is more kind of a uh, an ending to action thrillers than murder mysteries but I do think it's really important so I try and have a clue on every page so that when Ernest stands up at the end of the book and solves it He's solving 300 things. He's not solving four and that really helps that kind of escalating feel of, of this kind of domino falling solution and everything clicking. One of the ways that I like to see it is it's sort of like you're, you're tying a knot and, and not pulling the knot tight and you're adding a string to the knot and so they're all kind of in a spiderweb out from this kind of loose knot in the middle and then you grab them all and you pull it and that's the end of the book.
1: Okay, I like that. That's a great way to think about it. And the book is already out in Australia, correct?
0: Yes. Yeah, it's been out about two months.
1: So how is that? Do you prefer to have them coming out at the same time, different places, or is it nice to have it out in Australia now, out in the US in January?
0: Look, I mean, I don't really necessarily have a preference. It's been really, really fun. It's been a really big publicity And sales effort from my publisher down here that's taken up a lot of my time. So it's quite good that I don't have to do both sets of publicity at once, but combining the dates into sort of a a one kind of global release date is also, uh, has an appeal. I mean, the speed at which I published the first book was more spread out than this. So we've synced them a little bit closer together, which is really fantastic, but it's all to do with, yeah, what, what can go in each market at each time. And you you really just have to think about each individual space and where you're best fit on their list. So in Australia, you know, I'll just be, you know, honest about it. But in Australia, I'm sort of popular enough to be on the Christmas list. But in the US, we're growing. We've got a lot of brilliant readers and it's done really, really well. But um, I would probably get a little blown out of the water by some of the bigger Christmas releases. So, it's a much, much more comfortable slot for me and one I'm really excited to sort of take by the horns in January. So, there's there's sort of individual location based reasons for where you're going to fit on your publisher's list that can make the book work the best and you've really just got to trust your publisher. But also the book, you know, we're published in 27 territories. So, some places haven't even released the first book yet, some places are releasing the second, you know. So, everyone's sort of across the world, it's sort of really hard to get everyone on the same date. So I just kind of let it happen as it happens.
1: And just tour all the time, depending on which publication date is coming up.
0: Yeah, well, that's really fun. I mean, it is really, (laughs) it is really, really fun. It's one of my favorite things is meeting and talking to readers. And so the longer I can draw that out, the happier it makes me. Um, At some point, I do have to sit down and write next book. But um, no, I really do love it. So yeah, drag it out. That's, that's, That's my strategy.
1: And I'm always so interested to ask authors, what has surprised them about reader response? And I so often am doing the interviews before the book comes out, so they don't really know. But because your book has come out already in Australia, were there certain things that people have responded to or have commented on that you didn't expect?
0: Yeah, I mean, overall, it's just been phenomenal and it's been so exciting to see people engage with the book. One of the things that I was, you know, uh, that I was worried about as an author was that this is a second book and, you know, I tried to make it, it's completely standalone because that's kind of a golden age tenant is that you have the same detective in a new case, but I was very aware it's a second book and it would be compared against the first one. And so I was like, will people like it. As much or a little bit more than the first one, I think it's a better book, and so I hoped they would, but you know you never know, and so I was like, "Oh, maybe they'll be like, "Oh, I like the first one, but this one is woof <laughs> <laughs> But the response has been phenomenal in that area. One of the things that has really surprised me is that I've had a lot of people come to book signings with their books. first of all, I've had people come to book signings, which is like a big kind of difference to my first book where I had two people show up to a library you know every author's been through that but it's kind of really really kind of changed. so it's it's kind of weird to show up somewhere and there'd be a little bit of a line or something and you go wow oh cool people like it people have got annotated books they've got you know tabs in them sometimes hundreds and hundreds of tabs where they've highlighted lines they liked or clues or you know and some people bring along like a workbook and they've got them trying to work it out and their own sort of research into the into the case and that has just been absolutely astounding to me i i just think it's amazing so just to have readers engage so deeply with your work has has really floored me and i just i i love that i've seen the annotated books before but they're mainly sort of i guess they're mainly sort of romance or fantasy books like it's a very it's a very kind of online kind of Way of 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 reading those types of books, and I just never thought it would be someone would bring a copy of my book that was just bristling with tabs, and then they they ask me about clues. They say, "Well, on this page, you said this, and and um, could you explain that clue to me?" And then I go, "Yeah." And then they go, "Oh, cool!" And you know, so that that's been the most surprising and delightful part. Okay, that is delightful.
1: I worked at a murder mystery bookstore here in Houston for years. And did so many author events, and I've never seen people showing up with their books like that. So that has to be such a wonderful feeling for you.
0: Oh, it's the best. Also, side note on I love how the US has specific themed bookstores. We do not have that in Australia. And I just absolutely love that you have murder mystery bookstores. It's just the best.
1: It was really the best place to work. I stopped when COVID hit, but I just loved it. I'd been a customer forever, I've read mysteries since I was young. And it was just such a great job and a really fun place to work. So are you going to continue writing these books with these characters or in this vein as you go along?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm working on the next one now. I like to kind of, you know, Train hasn't released to the US yet. So I like to make sure that everyone knows that everyone, narrator included, is up for grabs as, uh, as things can happen to them in the books. So I'm not calling it the Ernest Cunningham series. I'm calling it the Everyone series. Um, which is not a spoiler to train but um, hopefully add some suspense to it so yes the everyone series and the next one they've all kind of got the same kind of rhythm of the title so everyone in my family has killed someone everyone on this train is a suspect of the next one is called everyone in this nah, is a nah. but i can't tell you the actual <laughs> words yet <laughs> <laughs> i do know them you just can't share them <laughs> yeah and it's been optioned
1: for HBO. So tell me about that.
0: Yeah, it was that was super exciting. Um, in in January 2022, so almost two years ago now. On the second of January, just when everyone was sort of coming back to work, I got I got a phone call from my film agent, and he said. Um, you know, we've got a little bit of interest and, um, I'm just going to test the waters, but, uh, you know, we might be able to do some film stuff on this book, which is really exciting to me. And I was pretty gung ho on, right, interest, you know, as an author, someone's interested, sign it, sign it. <laughs> and he says, you know, we'll, 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 we'll see what the kind of response is. And then 24 hours later, he rings me again. And it's like 6 a.m. in Australia and he says, so you need to clear your schedule for the next two weeks because we've, we've gone out around town and everybody's reading it and they all want to meet you. So it was a really exciting time. It was supposed to be two weeks and it wound up being about four of just back-to-back meetings of people who I was so nervous to meet in these Zoom meetings. And I was just kind of, you know, someone said, well, you were very composed, Benjamin. And I just said to them, to be quite honest, I was, I was, I was packing it and so I could barely get the words out. But then at the end of the day, you know, we got to sort of choose between who we thought would be best to make the program. And HBO partnering with Made Up Stories, which is an Australian production company that is run by Bruna Papadrea and her husband, Steve Vitensky and Jody Madison, they they made Big Little Lies, for example, and um, The Undoing. And so, yeah, they were just really fantastic. And I felt like it was the the scope of HBO and the... Australian connection of made up stories was too irresistible and they they just had such a great pitch and so we decided to go with them but it was a very exciting time in my life and a very you know almost surreal or bizarre you're, you're choosing between studio they're, they're, they're saying hey come with us and you're like oh man that is a tough choice but I'm so proud of the team that they got together and you know we're chipping away it's it's in development and there's screenwriting stuff happening. But sort of no kind of milestones or specific things um, happening just yet. But it's all very, very exciting.
1: That is very exciting. And I bet it did feel surreal to be talking to these various companies. Everybody's pitching their ideas and you're thinking, oh, they sound good. And then you hang up and you talk to the next group. Oh, they sound good too. Just trying to narrow it down. But I think the Australian connection makes really good sense for this story.
0: Yeah. And I mean, everybody was so enthusiastic and everybody engaged in the story really deeply with a lot of different takes as well. You know, I think any adaptation sort of has a path to the screen and that was really exciting to see. You know, some writers were saying, well, we could do it like this and some were saying, we could do it like this. And so I personally think that that's one of the really fun bits about the adaptation. So I'm I'm sort of consulting on the TV series but I'm not writing it because I'm very conscious that the book I wrote is the story that I wanted to tell and I'm really excited to see what someone else will make out of it. I, I don't necessarily think that every adaptation needs to be just a literal translation of every line on the page onto the screen. Um, obviously, there's things that I want in there and hope that they do sort of the way I did them in the book, but um, I'm also just really excited. I'm excited to go into it, Opening night to paraphrase, I know it's for TV, and and watch it and see what someone has made and be excited and surprised and um, all those kind of good things that that come with watching something new. So that's very much my be my philosophy on it as well. But it was really exciting seeing all the different takes and what people thought they could do with with Ernest as a character or with the with the kind of the core mystery and the setting and and all that good stuff. So really fun.
1: Well, I think the way you're viewing it is smart as well because. You can't translate something to the screen word for word from a book anyway. I mean, you're going to have things are different visual than they are while you're reading. And so there will have to be changes made. And it's just a matter of what those changes are and how much it represents your story, which it sounds like you'll have a good sense for that. But I think that sometimes people really do want it to be verbatim and it's just not possible.
0: I think that it's impossible to capture the image that the author has in their head and and I say that not just from a TV perspective I think it's impossible for every single reader to see the exact same image the way that you see them now maybe arguably that could be up to the skill of a writer and if you can impart that exact image but you know I think that we sort of the way all readers read we build our own experiences into how we view books and we think about things and and we lay things on. So everybody's mental movie of a book as they're reading it is different. So why would making a physical movie be any different as well? But it's it's really hard to match with exactly what's in your head. And I think that the goal is to try and get it in the space. But if the criteria for disappointment is that it matches your exact uh, vision for it, then I think that you're just leading yourself to disappointment. So I'm just trying to be well, you know that's my philosophy on it. I'm, I'm excited to see what what mental movie other people are making out of the words that I've put on the page because I've got my own one, but it's going to be it'll be different to yours the way that you read it. I mean, I'm I'm really bad with when I read books. I'm really bad with details, and such that people will, you know, it'll get to the end of the book, and I'll be like, that person has curly hair. <laughs> I had no idea, you know. <laughs> And sometimes when I watch films, I'm like, what's that person's name? Because I just kind of, I like the world and the way people sort of move through it a little bit more than whether they wear glasses or not. And sometimes it can catch you out because I'm like, uh, what? (laughs) Again, that's my mental movie because I sort of just kind of go on some of those things. So yeah, that's my kind of philosophy on it.
1: And I do think every reader has their own vision as they're reading a book, what the characters look like, what the setting looks like. So yes, no way is any translation going to meet everybody's expectations. But I think there are many in recent times that are doing fabulous jobs. And it's been fun to see that because I think there has been a better focus, I guess, on trying to make these screen adaptations very reminiscent of the story, if that's the best way to say it, in terms of not necessarily having to follow it page by page, but being a really good representation of the book by the time you're done.
0: Oh, they're so good at the moment. I mean, you know, and the number of book adaptations that are getting made, it's just phenomenal. Or I guess, you know, a lot of stuff is based on books that maybe we don't necessarily relate so closely to the fact that they're based on books across the whole of sort of film kind of history. But I think now it's much more forward, you know, this is the adaptation of this book is, is a little bit more clear even if the book's not kind of a, a blockbuster, if it's just a great story. But I agree with you. I mean, the quality and it's the matching of visions and the teams that are working together, the synergy that they're able to sort of create with matching those visions has led to such, such high quality stuff over the last kind of, over the last five years, really kind of, I've noticed that pick up in adaptation. So it's just a, I mean, it's all around just a thrill. I hope people like it when it comes out. But yeah, it's just, it's still surreal. I can't get over it. <laughs> well, it's super exciting.
1: And I'm sure it's hard to get over that because you're like, I'm going to get to see my thing on the screen.
0: Right. And I hope I get to stand in the background. That's that's my, I don't know if that's an actual thing or if I'm saying this on a podcast and then they're like, uh, Benjamin, <laughs> no, you will not be invited. But um, sometimes some of my author friends, they stick a Parker on them and put them in the background of a scene. And I will put my hand up for that 100%. Absolutely. I
1: definitely have heard of that. And also just getting to be on the set when they're filming some of the time, not all the time, but a little bit to get to see it all unfold. So yes, you definitely have to raise your hand and say, I want to be in this somewhere. Well, let's quickly talk about your cover because I love your US cover. I just think it is so representative of the story, but it's just gorgeous as well. Do you love it?
0: Yes, absolutely. They've just knocked it out of the park.
1: Was this the first one they showed you? Did you all have to work on it? How did that work for you? This one
0: was the first one they showed me. So I've got an Australian cover, at which is quite similar to the UK cover, which has sort of got got big font that sort of stylized some of the letters of murder weapons and stuff. But we had a really cool cover for the US hardback of Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. But then for the paperback release, which is in January as well, of the first book, they sort of redesigned it and had this kind of new kind of style which is that kind of I don't, I don't know how to describe it is it is it is it, is it it's sort of pictorial I guess or it's, it's sort of drawn but it's not like cartoonish and right that's exactly how I would describe it yeah and they they did that for the for the paperback of everyone in my family has killed someone and then they then they matched it with the train so it was the first version of train I'd seen but it was the second version of everyone in my family has killed someone and just the the style of them both together is absolutely brilliant and the the train cover the colors the knife there's a knife in the table on the train carriage i mean it's just it's vivid and exciting this is my whole thing right and and authors and publishers kind of have conversations about covers a lot and you know, you've got to sort of fit where you're going to go on the shelf. And there's all these kind of considerations that, that authors don't uh, that authors have the luxury of not having to think about. So I go into all of those conversations with just make it fun, just just fun. That's what I want. Fun. And they they show me this one. And I'm like, man, this looks like an absolute blast of a read. So I really adore it.
1: It really does. And I think it's different. And that is one of those things that is so important these days. No matter where I see your cover, I'm like, okay, I know that book immediately. Versus there are a bunch of them that they really look so similar, it's hard to distinguish sometimes.
0: Yeah, well, I think, you know, we wanted to be distinct. I think that the, the, what's inside the covers is like nothing else on the shelves as well. So, you know, we needed that to translate to the outside. Definitely.
1: Well, before we wrap up, Benjamin, what have you read recently
0: that you really liked? So I've read two novels that are both coming up. Am I allowed to recommend those for, for future things? But whenever this releases, maybe they'll be closer. Absolutely. Go right ahead. So the first one is uh, Stuart Turton's The Last Murder at the End of the World, which is his new book. He's the author of The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, which is one of my favourite books of all time. And I was very, very lucky to get an early copy of the new one. And he just, he reinvents whatever genre he's decided to write in every time. All his books, this will be his third. They're all murder mysteries, but they all sort of take on different bits. So this one has like a little bit of, sort of dystopian sci-fi to it which is not something I usually read and I was just completely sucked up in it and the way that he reinvents himself in every book I think is incredibly ambitious and he takes so many amazing risks and they're just I mean they're fun but they're also insanely well plotted jealousy inducing books they are and then the other one is the new Tana French which is called The Hunter I think it's called The Hunter it is Yes, and it's publishing in is that March? I'm not sure on the US release date. I think maybe February. I've re- I've read it. I really liked it, but I th- I think it's February. What yeah, what a fabulously atmospheric character study of of a crime novel, you know. It's just it's just shows what crime fiction can be on the complete other end of the spectrum of genre than what i'm doing so i i just really really loved that book
1: i did too such a strong sense of place too you just she just really drops you into this place in ireland with which i wasn't familiar at all and again like talking about with no spoilers at all talking about dropping the clues along the way and then the resolution
0: of the story was was really well done mm, i mean she's She's a pro in, in the most – I mean, that sounds like such a simple compliment, but you, you sort of – you know that feeling when you're just reading something and you you know you're in great hands. That was the feeling I got from that book. So, yes, very much enjoyed that one.
1: Okay, good. And I have the Stuart Turton, so I'll move it up the list. I think it comes out in May here maybe, but it sounds
0: like it will be incredible. It's really, really good. I mean, I just – just the ambition that he brings to each of his books – across only three novels it's just like you know it feels like he's 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 never doing the same thing twice so he's never boring himself so he's never boring me that's kind of the exciting thing about reading it that's an interesting way to look at it i like that
1: well benjamin thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me i loved your book and i can't wait for it to come out in the u.s
0: thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it it was a really nice chat this episode is brought to you by la quinta by window Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual, all to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts, the Mad Scientist Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it, wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts from a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time.